Before we start into our message in Colossians today, I wanted to share with you some information about something that's coming to Rochester. Pastor Reed mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and it's called Rock the Lakes Rochester. This is from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and it's his son Franklin Graham who is going to be behind this in coming here. Rock the Lakes Rochester is meant to be an outreach with a special aim towards younger people in our community. There's so many people in our community, so many young people in this country who are lost, and even those who are Christians who are not walking in a way worthy of being with the Lord. So this outreach, which is scheduled for June 16th and 17th, is meant to be a music festival with the word brought during it to uh, bring to people the good news of Jesus Christ. There's also going to be a young people, say a teens part of this. They have a, a training program that's going to be part of an all-day session on a Saturday and a Friday night thing called FM 419. You see the scripture reference, follow me, FM 419, Matthew 419, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now it's interesting, and I, and I know some of you may be saying, okay, well, how does that fit in with things theologically? Well, Something like 600 churches from our area are going to be part of this. And, of course, there are going to be some differences that some of us have on doctrine. Otherwise, we wouldn't have denominations the way we do. But as I was reminded at the meeting I went to, you know, if we all talked about different things of doctrine, all of a sudden there'd be all kinds of mayhem in the room. But we were all brought together remembering John 14.6 that no one comes to the Father except through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, when you may hear some conversation in this about making a decision for Christ, we know that until our heart has been quickened by the Holy Spirit, we really can't make that decision. But once He's done that, He is so irresistible, the decision is automatic. You may hear people talk about uh, asking Jesus into your heart, but we know that Jesus gives us a new heart and gives us His Spirit to dwell there. So there'll be some language things that'll be a little different, but everybody's coming together to remind people that it's Jesus and Him alone who can save us. So we're very excited about this. One last thing to mention on this, so we'll be looking for some volunteers, a few folks who would really like to be part of this here at ECF. Uh, to be kind of leader volunteers, and then we've got opportunities for all kinds of people. There's a, a congregational leader that they suggest that, that uh, assists the pastor elders in getting the word out among the church and being the communication. They need somebody to be a prayer leader so that the church will pray for this event, that people would come to know Christ through it. They need somebody to be a training leader who will help get us to these different different. Uh, uh, events and so forth, a student leader to work with the youth to get them together, and a community action project captain. That person will help coordinate things because one of the things they're going to do in May, about a month before the event, is get churches from all over this area to come together and serve the community, working together in the name of Christ and getting to know one another. So those are things coming forward. And if you want to volunteer right now, they need people to help out in the office, and we have some sign-up forms for that, too. So it's something pretty exciting. Billy Graham came in 1988, and I know some of you were involved. And to uh, quote the old advertising slogan, this is not his father's crusade. It's a very different thing, aimed for a time and aimed for a generation that is in danger of being lost. 
So uh, anybody has any questions, do feel free to come and, and ask about that. Well, as we begin our study in Colossians, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to share with you a true story. It's a story about uh, two people, Chuck and Lizzie. And this goes all the way back to 1966, which I can scarcely remember, and I know uh, probably the majority of the people here uh, weren't even alive then. Chuck was a young army medic in Vietnam. And Lizzie was an elementary school student. It was getting towards Christmas time, and Lizzie's class in downstate New York was writing out and making Christmas cards to send to soldiers in Vietnam. So they all wrote these up, they decorated them, they sent them off. And only one person in that class got a response from anybody in Vietnam, and it was Lizzie. Chuck said it was a nice card and for a class project, so I decided to write back, and he did. She was overjoyed. She was so excited that she got this message back. So she sent Chuck a box of Girl Scout cookies. He was really touched by that. And he found this little Vietnamese doll and packaged it up and sent it back to her, to Lizzie. And from there, the relationship between these two pen pals blossomed. Remember, this is 45 years ago. They continued to be in touch with each other. Lizzie sent pictures as she graduated from high school and a picture of her in her wedding dress and then pictures of her little kids. And Chuck saw Lizzie grow up and she re he rejoiced at all these things. They sent little gifts at times to each other, too. That went on for 45 years. And then in November, Lizzie, who now lives in Florida, knew that she was going to be heading to Washington State, where Chuck lives. Chuck's now 73 years old. And they made arrangements to catch up with each other. Well, Chuck was nervous. He said, I was scared to death to meet her. I was completely shaking. She felt the same way. She said she was scared to death, nervous too. But then they met for lunch and they held each other in a long embrace and spent five hours together. And they sat and talked as old friends for those five hours. And they hoped they can catch up with each other again. Well, this is an illustration to show that you can connect with people across long distances who you may not even have met. That's what Paul did with this letter. He never met these people in Colossae. He sent them this letter to encourage them, but in a way he felt that he had a connection. I think I've had some of these same things too. You know, I've connected with people through uh, internet discussion groups. Uh, there's a gentleman I was just talking to on Skype yesterday. I could see him sitting in his living room in northern England while I was sitting in my home office and we were having a conversation. It was, it's amazing we can do that. We've had people in this congregation who have met each other and connected with each other and built bonds with each other and married each other and are expecting children together through that. And certainly we've had bonds with missionaries. Well, in each of these cases, this close bond develops. And again, Paul's letter is to those who he's never met and probably never did meet till they were in glory together. But in some sense, he does know them and love them. He says that in verses 1 and 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this, like all of Paul's epistles, this is a love letter. It's a letter of love to the people of Christ. So before we dig in, 
Let's kind of set the scene of Colossians and give then an overview of where we're going to go for the next few weeks. And then we'll dig into the first part of the chapter today. There are a few themes here. First of all, the centrality and supremacy of Jesus, especially in the passages we're really going to focus on here. I'm always struck by verses 15 through 20 and hearing Hod read them. It just, it's amazing what a, what a great doxology that is to Christ. He's Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He secured redemption for His people, enabling them to participate with Him in His death, resurrection, and fullness. Later on in the, in the letter, Paul warns them about falling into uh, former Jewish practices or Jewish mysticism or angel worship or asceticism and paganism and myths. It's not really totally clear what all of those were. And we get the idea that Epaphras came to Rome to talk to Paul and say, hey, we need you to help straighten them out on some things. The letter also reminds us that only Christ can bring creation back under God's complete sovereignty. And only Christ can redeem people and make them new creatures in union with Him. Now this was written, for sake of a little background, around the year 62 A.D. and Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He says near the end, remember my chains. Epaphras had heard the Gospel from Paul in Ephesus a few years earlier and then he brought the good news back to his hometown and started a church there as people heard and believed. And he's visiting, as I just mentioned, in Rome to try to get Paul to help things out there. Now, uh, if you could bring up the map. Colossae is not one of the great cities of the ancient world. That's about where it is. You can see Ephesus and so forth. That, where it says Asia, that's modern-day Turkey. So Colossae was just a, a little town there. And as it turns out, it was sort of a dying town. As the main road, not long after this, moved about 15 miles away. I think we can understand how that might be. Remember when the uh, interstate highway system was built, that um, there were a lot of state highways that had little motels and, and, uh, and uh, roadside uh, eateries and things like that. The interstate came in, they went out of business. Uh, people were no longer, as the song says, getting their kicks on Route 66. They were taking the interstate and bypassing all those. And that's what happened with Colossae. So let's take a survey on chapter 1. This will kind of give us a map of where we're going to go over the next several weeks. First of all, there's a greeting in verses 1 and 2 as he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Then he moves on to the next section in verses 3 through 8, a time of thanksgiving. This is where we're going to zero in on mostly today. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then we see a prayer in verses 9 through 12. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We have a presentation of the Gospel in verses 13 and 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verses 15 through 20 give us a doxology. The first part, Christ is the Lord of creation. He says, And you who do not yet believe may be reconciled. And you who do believe, you have Him dwelling in you. 
The Christ who saves, he's telling us, is the Christ who sanctifies. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says, hey, having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? That's the answer, of course, that he's looking for is no, we can't do it alone. It's the Spirit of God dwelling in us to sanctify us and change us and start molding us and grow us in Christ-likeness. Paul's typical theme is this is who Christ is and this is what He has done for us. For by Him all things were created, all things were created through Him and for Him. Christ is the Lord of redemption, reconciling Himself to all things in verses 18-20, through 20, making peace by the blood of His cross. We see gospel and reconciliation coming in verses 21-23 through 23, when He says you, and we can say we if we are believers, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Then finally, Christ in us. This mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This thing that the people of God through that time didn't fully see and they now could see in reality as Christ had come. The mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. But at the biggest chunk again will be on verses 15-20. through who Christ is. We want to look at who Christ is because it's because of who Christ is that the Gospel saves. It's because of Christ and who He is that you who believe are reconciled. It's because some of you may still become reconciled. And again, because you who believe have Him dwelling in you. So we see kind of a following of Paul's typical theme in his letters. This is who Christ is. This is what He has done. Because of that, walk as those who are His, empowered by and taught by the Spirit dwelling within you. It's a greeting to the church, prayer and thanksgiving, gospel, all because of who Christ is. He is all and is in all. So let's begin with Paul's greeting. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ of Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Well, there's certainly not a whole lot of hidden theological depth happening there. But there is a a view of Paul's heart. So we heard in that illustration, even though he hadn't met these people, he already had a great love for them. That's the love I think we should all have for the saints. Haven't you ever met a Christian who you've never met before and all of a sudden there was that, that sort of bond that you felt there. You could... You could sense the Spirit of God with them and they sensed it in you. Then Paul goes on to a thanksgiving for his church. He says, we always thank God. And that kind of struck me as I read that, as I was studying that. Do we do that? Do we always thank God for one another? What would our attitude be if we did do that? I know there are times when even within our body, there may be disagreements or times that we rather sinfully wonder about attitudes of one another. But if we took the time to thank God for one another, wouldn't that change our attitude, change our hearts? Isn't that prayer about aligning our will with the will of God? 
Well, let's think about that, especially when we run into difficulties, and we know we will. I, I know Pastor Reed has said that one about, uh, I can't even remember how the rhyme goes now, uh, about uh, fellowshipping with the saints in glory and how great that'll be, but here it's another story. I wish I remembered how that rhyme went. But we have to uh, keep that heavenly view in mind and remember to see each other as God sees us, clothed in the righteousness of His Son. Well, what is it that he is thankful for? What is Paul thankful for here? Well, he's thankful for faith, love, and hope. That sort of echoes something we hear a lot in Paul's letters, a repeated refrain of faith and hope and love. Let's start with faith. We hear in Romans 5 where, where Paul tells us, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or as he says to the Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts out mentioning for their faith. And we have to remember that our faith is a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's, this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We remember that from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're given that faith. It's an objective thing that we have. We're given it when we're saved. But sometimes we don't really fully exercise our faith. We, we don't walk by faith. We walk by sight. Jesus remembered us about even if we have the faith of a mustard seed, the tiniest little piece of faith, we could do amazing things with His power. The disciples, because they didn't have the faith of a mustard seed, could not cast out demons. Remember that story from Matthew 17. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Him and kneeling before Him said, Lord, have mercy on My Son, for He is an epileptic and He suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The message in that is for us to trust in what God has done for us. We have to trust that when we have faith in Him, we have to trust that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that He's delivered us from condemnation. We need to live where Romans 8 begins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what faith does in your walk, remembering that you don't have that, that condemnation, that you're freed 
from a checklist that you have to follow. You're free to be that person in Christ that you now are, to walk as one not condemned, one free from having to justify yourself knowing that Christ has justified you. And while it may seem unintuitive or paradoxical to us, it's when we trust fully in Christ and look to Him and not look to trying to do it in our own selves that we actually make progress in this Christian walk. It's something that you don't always hear, but it's something we really want you to understand here at ECF, that it is looking to Him and not looking inside ourselves where we make progress. And when we do look at ourselves and see areas where we need work, remember Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that he is thankful for, for these Colossians, is faith. He's also thankful for their love. Jesus reminded us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John also writes in his first letter, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. I think that's another thing when we meet a Christian we may not have met before. We'll see that love. I see that love in the eyes of the people in this congregation every time I, I see you. It's, it's an amazing thing. Even when we don't get to be with one another as often as we'd like to, when we do have that time of fellowship, you see that love coming out of the eyes and out of the hearts. I don't know if you could actually say it's tangible or as they, they use with that overused word palpable, like you can feel it and touch it. It's awfully close to that, isn't it? That, that true Christian love that we have with our fellow brothers and sisters who've been given of His Spirit. So faith and love are two things that He's so thankful for with them. And then for their hope. As the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." He who promised is indeed faithful. And that's our hope. Faith, love, and hope. And how did this come to the Colossians? How did they get that faith, that love, and hope? How did they come to believe in Jesus Christ? The word was heard from a faithful servant, Epaphras. Now this is why clarity in the Gospel message is so important. I was just looking online the other day, and I don't mean to to do this to criticize other Christians, but it struck me as I looked at a website for a church that's starting up, the one thing that was missing in their message was a clear 
message of the gospel. They said they want to help people be more like Jesus. And certainly, every single one of us wants to be a lot more like Jesus. we got a long way to go, all of us. Me, probably more than anybody else. I, I take that cue from the Apostle Paul who always reminded us of that. But the clarity in the message is important. I could ask you this. I know in my own case it was a lot of times, but how many times did somebody share the Gospel with you before you believed? I read somewhere one time that some people, uh, they, they said an average of something like 82 times. I don't know about that. Some people hear it the first time and get it. Some of us are a little bit more dense and it takes a while. But if you don't have a clear message of the Gospel to people, when they hear it, they're not going to understand it. And if they don't understand it and it's not the direct and clear Gospel, it's not going to save. And remember when you finally did hear and believe and understood it. Wasn't that astonishing to you? Aren't you grateful that that person, that friend, that preacher, maybe somebody on television, maybe in some strange circumstance you heard the Gospel and believed? That's why it needs to be clear. And that's also, also why we must not be stingy about it. One of the things that we've been going through with the uh, Porterbrook group, and I hope some more folks will be able to participate with that in the fall, this in-house training program that we're doing. One of the things that's been very striking to a lot of people is the kind of the admonition and encouragement in there to find ways to share the gospel throughout your life. We we're just looking at a segment recently where it talks about how tough people's time is and how segmented, you know, you've got work and you've got school and you've got housework and you've got this and you've got that. And then where does that leave time for the gospel? It leaves this little bit. They say, no, that's not the way to approach things. Look at the gospel as being the entirety of the time you have and find ways to bring that into what you do in your work and your shopping and school and so forth. So we must not be stingy about presenting the gospel. We can do that in natural ways. I've heard from, from some of the folks who've gone through that class how they found new ways, maybe at lunch, maybe at the store, maybe with friends to, to bring that message forward. That's part of why I'm hoping that, that we can take part in uh, Rock the Lakes, Rochester. Why I'm hoping that that will bring some churches together at least to pray together about revival in this community. And why I hope that we can be a church that if people come to Christ through the message of Franklin Graham, or even if they think they've come to Christ, that we can be the church that's there to open our arms to them, bring them in, bring them good gospel teaching, bring them the Bible, bring them some Christian love. I hope we can be that church. So they heard from a faithful servant. And then Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit. And some of the commentators who are really smart about original languages and so forth say that there's a direct connection to him talking about the gospel going forth and increasing and bearing fruit Back to Genesis 1.28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, as we all remember, and I know that, uh, that our 4th, 5th, and 6th graders have been learning it quite a bit through Genesis, we really failed. Our, our original parents failed in that didn't follow through on that uh, mandate given to them to spread and fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply 
certainly not in the way God had planned for it there. Not that he had a plan B, but you know there was a there was an opportunity there that uh, Adam and Eve failed to fulfill. But now that mandate to fill the earth is happening with the church. We're being fruitful and multiplying by multiplying believers. And one day when God brings that new heavens and new earth and Christ returns, then the earth will be filled just with His people and it will be bountiful and it will be a very good thing once again. But we see that throughout the book of Acts, for instance, as the church is going out and multiplying and being fruitful. We see that same creation dominion language coming in there. In Acts 6-7, and the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. Or in chapter 12, but the Word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. So the Word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing, it says in chapter 19. All these places, bountiful, multiplying, growing, that language of original creation, now the church multiplying, fulfilling that and filling the earth. So there's fruit in the Gospel and there's also growing fruit in the believers. Even in the face of persecution, there was growing fruit. We see in Acts chapter 8 when Stephen was executed. And it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul who would become Paul in that great Damascus Road conversion. And Dr. Luke continues, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The church, even in the face of persecution, brought the word forth that was growing and multiplying and bearing fruit, spreading and growing in the world. The Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is absolutely irrepressible. Christ will build His church, and as He promised, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have faith, we have hope, we have love, and we have the Gospel bearing fruit. And then Paul writes to them as he speaks about Epaphras. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in spirit. Let's focus on that, love in the spirit. Don't we know that all human beings have love? People have love for their children, love for their spouses, love for their parents and relatives, their their dear friends. There's got to be something different about Christian love that's not like other religions or people without Christ. Other religions tell us to love our neighbor. Here's a few of them. Buddhism says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Okay? Confucianism, try your best to treat others as you would wish to be treated yourself and you will find that this is the shortest way to benevolence. 
Hinduism says this is the sum of duty. Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Islam teaches that no one of you is a believer until he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself. Taoism says regard your neighbor's gain as your gain and your neighbor's loss as your own loss. You can see a pattern developing here. The Shawnee Indians do not kill or injure your neighbor for it is not him that you injure. You injure yourself, but do good to him. Therefore, add to his days of happiness as you add to your own. Even the philosophers, the Greeks, Socrates said, do not do unto others what angers you if done to you by others. Or Aristotle, we should behave toward friends as we would wish friends to behave toward us. This all sounds like the golden rule, and it is. And you can imagine where that probably was borrowed from for them. But there's something missing there, right? You might even sum this up as maybe not so much love, but practical benevolence. Do a good deed to them, maybe they'll do one to you. Don't do bad things to them, so bad things don't happen to you. I even read a theologian once who had things completely backwards. He said, love is keeping the Ten Commandments. If you keep the Ten Commandments, that produces love. He had it backwards. It's, it's certainly the love that produces the obedience. But love in the Spirit is distinct to the church and it's very different. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not, if you keep my commandments, that shows you love me. But if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's who you've been recreated to be. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. It's the very Spirit of God, the very nature of God. God in the Holy Spirit living within you and producing a love that the world cannot know, the love that the world cannot understand. This is the love that He calls out, that love in the Spirit that distinguishes the church from the rest of the world. And there's fruit of the Spirit too. We remember Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul reminds us that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 1 John, that great love letter from John the Apostle, by this we know we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. And it's even that Holy Spirit who has come to teach us love. You remember being changed at the time you came to believe? In Christ, before you'd been discipled, before you'd been taught anything, something was different about you. And Paul wrote that to the Thessalonians. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's a special love in the Spirit that you as a believer have. That's a different love than the love the, love the world knows. That's the very love of God come to dwell within you. So Paul expresses some great love and thanksgiving here for people he's never known. 
one day like Chuck and Lizzie here as they got to meet together for the first time after 45 years we also have that hope that we can meet those saints who have come before us or ones we've known who have passed on we can come to know and love them as Paul writes to the Corinthians so now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love and that's a love in the Holy Spirit given to us as a gift by Christ. A love in His Spirit, walking by faith in His promises. And that's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these words of Paul the Apostle that have been brought to us over the ages. We thank You for the love that he had for those people who he'd never met. We pray we'd be people who would love those whom we've never met. Not just our brothers and sisters, but those people out there who are caught in their sins and trespasses. There are people out there who we need to love them more than they love their sin. Father, we need to be people who are proclaiming Your good news to those people we run into. Letting, this, letting them know about the faith we have in You. The love that You've given us to give to others. And that hope we have one day of being with You. Father, we ask that You'd stir up in each of our hearts that aching love for the lost, our lost family members and friends and people we work with and people we know, that we would find ways to be faithful servants to express that hope that's within us. And Father, thank You that You've given us Your Word to teach us about the mystery that was hidden for those ages and now is revealed to us in Your Son and through Your Word. That mystery, the hope of glory, Christ in us. Thank You for that gift of Your Son, His death, resurrection, and ascension so that we could be reconciled to You and look forward one day to be with you in glory for eternity. We praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.